0: Hello, my ghouls, gays, and ethereal days. Welcome back to Crimes and Witch Demeanors, the paranormal podcast where we go beyond the Wikipedia page and use historic sources to suss out the truth about our favorite ghostly tales. As always, I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Long time no see? Hear? Listen? I don't even know what that would be, but long time no... You know, you, you get it. Sorry for missing a week. I know I said I was going bi-weekly, but I have had a lot going on. I started my new job, as you know, which is marvelous. Signed a lease on a gorgeous apartment in my ideal neighborhood. And then the real reason why I haven't been able to make the podcast, aside from all of that, was that I've been having some health issues that I'm trying to get help for, but it is not easy. It's not easy. Between like negligent primary care physicians and specialists not being able to get you in, ever. Anyways, I digress, but... Thank you for your patience in me releasing this episode. I hope it is well worth it. This week's episode is actually going to end up closing out our Paranormal Pride Month that we started. I'm a little sad that we didn't get to cover as many queer stories as I intended to tell, but this one that we're closing on is particularly important. And it is heavy. It is really, really heavy and heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. I cried a lot while researching this and writing this, and I don't even know, I might even cry as I tell you about it. So this week, we're traveling to New Orleans to cover the tragic upstairs lounge arson attack and its aftermath. This attack was the deadliest known attack on a gay bar in U.S. history before the Pulse nightclub massacre happened in 2016. While this attack was not necessarily targeted directly out of homophobia, the response or the lack thereof of the tragedy by not only firefighters, police, news outlets, local community churches, and local representatives in government, it's absolutely shameful and appalling. I- I'm speechless. Wait till you hear this story. It's awful. But- it's really important to understand. It's going to make you angry, it's going to make you cry, but it really serves as a reminder as to why we have Pride Month, why it is so important, but also to remind us how far we've really come. I want to tell the story with respect, and I want you to mourn and remember these victims, and to shed a light on this catastrophe that's not really talked about. I had never even heard of it before doing this research, and I hope it touches you like it touched me. So without further ado... Let's tell the story and remember the victims of the upstairs lounge arson attack. Despite being regarded as a bright and lively city, New Orleans is widely known for its darkness. Even in the most joyous of places, something seems to slither just beneath the surface of this swampy and smarmy town. While many of the more affluent members of the LGBT community, or the GLBT as it was then known, may have preferred swankier accommodations on Bourbon Street, the Gay Triangle of the French Quarter housed a more eclectic group. Queer people of color, drag queens, those who were working class, and sex workers often found themselves in the seedy embrace of Iberville and Canal Streets. However, the upstairs lounge located above the Jemani Bar was an escape from the oppressive humidity and scores of sordid sinners. While the Upstairs Lounge had operated as a cocktail bar since the early 1960s, it officially opened on a Halloween night of 1970. The patrons of the bar were a very tight-knit group who welcomed people of all shapes, sizes, colors, and professions. There were doctors and lawyers, drag queens and sex workers, black people and white people, and everyone in between who all enjoyed each other's company. These people mixed and mingled and gathered closely around the bar's piano to sing show tunes from Oklahoma. The bartender and bouncer, Douglas Rasmussen, was fondly known by patrons as Buddy. When the buzzer would ring to let someone in from the downstairs, he would meet them at the door and announce them as they came in. Here's Johnny, or here comes everyone's favorite man, Ted, or here comes Lucinda, or whoever may be entering. The atmosphere of the upstairs lounge was unparalleled by any other bar in the area. Perhaps this is why members of the Metropolitan Community Church gathered at the lounge regularly. The Metropolitan Community Church was a contemporary church composed of a diverse congregation who openly welcomed and had many queer members. The Metropolitan Community Church had chapters all throughout the country. While the New Orleans chapter was quite new, While the church had recently relocated to the home of Reverend William R. Larson for services, the church held a weekly beer bust with an all-you-can-eat buffet and beer for only $1 at the upstairs lounge every Sunday. On one particular Sunday, Sunday, June 24th, 1973, while most of the country was commemorating the fourth anniversary of the Stonewall riots, with official pride parades, New Orleans was celebrating in its own way. New Orleans' queer community was not as organized as other cities and had not arranged for any official events. However, this Sunday marked the last day of the pride celebrations that they did hold, and an all-you-can-drink beer contest was being held at the upstairs lounge. The usual small crowd was bolstered by newcomers and members of the Metropolitan Community Church who had just gotten out of their Sunday services. However, there was a pause in the joyous banter, singing of show tunes, and the endless pouring of beer as an argument broke out between a couple of patrons. Buddy and a fellow bartender eventually had to force one of the men, a known troublemaker, to leave. As the man was forced down the stairs, he shouted, You can't kick me out! I'll burn this place to the ground! And he slammed the door behind him. This man, only minutes later, walked down the street to Walgreens and purchased a container of lighter fluid. Around 7 p.m., he approached the front door of the bar leading upstairs. He threw a Molotov cocktail into the stairwell and shut the heavy steel door and padlocked it. The fire burned inside the stairwell, quickly consuming the oxygen in the small space. The taxi buzzer was rang, and, thinking it odd, the bartender, Herbert Cooley, asked a man by the name of Luther Boggs to shout downstairs and let them know that they had not called the cab and for them to leave. When Boggs opened the door, the influx of fresh oxygen ignited the flames into a blazing inferno, which flooded into the upstairs lounge, igniting every surface it came in contact with. Partying promptly turned to panic as confused patrons rushed to find safety. Buddy was able to usher about a dozen people through a small unmarked back exit. Some men and women hid beneath the piano, while others rushed to the large windows at the front of the bar. However, many didn't notice, or perhaps they had forgotten in their panic, that these windows were covered by large iron bars. Although some svelte men and women were able to slip through the 14-inch gaps between the iron bars and leap to safety below... Oh my God, okay, okay, okay. Although some svelte men and women were able to slip through the 14-inch gaps between the iron bars and leap to safety below suffering only broken bones, the others were left to be consumed by the flames. Reverend Larson was one of the unfortunate. He tried to squeeze through, but was only able to get his head and an arm through the small opening. As he struggled to escape, the flames licked his flesh, and those below watching could hear him scream, oh god, oh god no, as he burned alive, his skin melting to the metal bars through which he tried to claw his way to safety. The New Orleans Fire Department extinguished the blaze in 16 minutes after it had started, but the damage was already done. Both the interior of the bar as well as its patrons were burnt beyond recognition. Because being queer was still dangerous, many victims did not carry identification or they carried false IDs and were not able to be readily identified. 32 perished altogether, 29 at the time of the incident, with three others succumbing to their injuries. While the fire department did extinguish the blaze, they didn't do much to help the victims. Many sat on the curb, their burnt flesh hanging from their bodies like smoked meat, while firefighters and paramedics refused to touch them. While the AIDS epidemic did not yet exist, there was still a stigma around homosexuality in queer bodies. Many community members took it upon themselves to gather their dead, injured and dying in stretchers, and usher them themselves to the hospital. To add to the already abominable behavior, the fire department left the charred corpse of Reverend Larson on display in the window for several hours before finally removing it. Chilling images of his body were published in newspapers and aired on television for the day or so that actually made headlines. It didn't even make national news, and the only televised segment was a sentence in passing. The story faded from local outlets altogether in less than two days. To add insult to injury, the newspaper published the names of the injured in the newspaper. This was a surefire way to ensure that these people were fired from their jobs, outed to their families, and ostracized further from society. Those survivors who were not forcibly outed by the media were made to laugh along to jokes about their trauma in the community. Do you know where they're going to bury the victims? (laughs) In fruit jars! was one of the popular jokes thrown around, but also one of the more tame ones. Naturally, jokes are made about burning fags, and the incident was colloquially referred to as the fruit fry. You would think it couldn't get any worse, but it did. Funeral homes refused to take in the bodies of the dead, and all local churches were forbidden to hold funerals for them. Even the family members of some of the victims refused to claim their bodies out of shame and hatred for the queer lives they had led. Law enforcement, as is the history with the queer community, was also not of much help. A suspect, the man from the bar, Richard Nunez, was apprehended days after the incident. He had bragged about the crime to his friends, and during interrogation, he was detected as being deceptive on a lie detector test. However, Nunez was not arrested, and when the case was presented to the DA, they rejected the case without reason. Patrons of the upstairs lounge, such as Stephen Duplantis, were afraid to come forward with information about Nunez. Duplantis could easily identify him and testify to the incident, but he was in the Air Force, and he knew that if he had spoken up, he would be dishonorably discharged and outed as gay, essentially destroying his life. It was clear that Nunez was the culprit, the police reports even said so, but he evaded justice, and a year after the incident, he committed suicide, ensuring that he would never face the consequences of his actions. Three unidentified victims, as well as the body of Ferris LeBlanc, a war veteran and patron of the bar, were buried in unmarked graves in a potter's field. While Ferris LeBlanc was identified, his family was never notified. His family, who was okay with him being gay and who loved him and had wondered where he went for decades and decades. Eventually, St. Mark's was permitted to quietly hold a small memorial that year with a few hundred attendees to give some semblance of dignity to the victims of the fire. While the fire was surely a horrendous event, the apathy of law enforcement, first responders, smearing of victims' names in the media, and the rejection by their local community and representatives was the true horror of this incident. So as this outro music to the next section of the podcast plays, I just ask you to take a moment of silence to respect and remember these people and to appreciate how far we truly have come in queer liberation. Okay, so maybe I did break down and cry while reading that narration and I didn't go back and re-record it because I would just keep on crying. This case, this story, really, really hit me so hard. Maybe it's because during my research I constantly had to look at photographs of Reverend Larson hanging in that window. He was there for hours and hours, not treated as a human, just left there. It's heavy and I'm debating putting that photograph on the Instagram, but you know where to go. At Crimes and Witchdemeanors on Instagram, I will be posting some photos of newspapers and such from this story. So this part of the podcast, usually on normal episodes, I will write it out and just read it to you just because of time constraints and how I've been feeling. I kind of just did bullet points and I'm going to talk about it more freely. Let me know if you actually enjoy this kind of method more and maybe I'll do it in the future again. So I heard of the story first through the book that I have been using for these Pride Month stories, Queer Hauntings, True Tales of Gay and Lesbian Ghosts by Ken Summers. While it was a great primer, I don't know how much of it is factual. The story I told you was everything I knew to be fact. I didn't want to disrespect these people, these victims, by telling you a lie first, and I would just figure I'd tell you the lies now, or the misconceptions now, and kind of suss through it. Now, one thing that I saw that was confusing is that while there was Buddy, there was another man by the name of George Bud Macchi, who were often conflated. Douglas Buddy Rasmussen was the man who. Was the bartender who helped a lot of people escape. Now, this other individual, George Bud Macchi, was a regular piano player at the bar. He was always playing the piano, people loved him, and he also helped people escape. However, for after helping the first group of people escape, he decided to go back into the building. And after the fire was extinguished, his body was found underneath his beloved piano, lying on top of two other bodies, as if he was trying to protect them from the flames. So, while there are these two individuals named Bud who helped people out of the building, unfortunately only one of them survived. So one thing that Ken Summer states in his book was that there were two suspects for the fire. However, I did watch a documentary produced by ABC that is really great. It will be in the show notes who interviewed people who were actually involved at the bar and with this incident, as well as people from the New Orleans Fire Department and Police Department, and they had only mentioned Nunez. And Ken Summers' description of events seems to take things from Nunez's story and assign it to someone else. So in Ken Summers' story, there was a man named David DuBose, who was the man who fought in the bar earlier that day and then was apprehended by law enforcement because he was bragging about the crime. Ken Summers says that he passed a lie detector test and was never charged with arson, and that one year later he had committed suicide. And then he goes on to say that a second suspect, Richard Nunez, suffered a seizure while being questioned, and he was taken to the hospital by officers, and then he eluded law enforcement after his release. Now, according to the ABC documentary, Richard Nunez was taken in for questioning where he was given a lie detector test. They actually provided the transcript of this lie detector test where it said that he was deceptive on it. It was in fact Nunez who passed the lie detector test and then also died as the court documents in the ones that they submitted to the DA, I believe a second time, states that their prime suspect Nunez committed suicide and so they were not able to further pursue the investigation. So unfortunately it seems that Ken Summers got those wrong, but I am wondering where he may have gotten that information. I don't know. He doesn't cite his sources unfortunately or at least not in text. He does have a bibliography at the very end of the book, but it's in no particular order, and I'm not about to comb through it. But again, I do want to recommend that ABC documentary that is on YouTube. Again, I'm linking it in the bibliography, interviews people who were there the day it happened, as well as members of the Metropolitan Community Church. And even more interestingly, it interviews and has a large section on the family of Ferris LeBlanc, who their family is trying to get his body exhumed from the potter's field. Because unlike a lot of queer people at that time, Ferris's family knew he was gay, knew he had a partner who eventually he broke up with, but they never knew what happened to him. He had just gone missing and they had never heard from him. That was very unlike him. He was a family man. And it turns out that he died in this fire and his family didn't know for like 30 years. I don't know if they have gotten the body exhumed to be reburied, but Bafferis LeBlanc was a World War II veteran loved by his family, and he deserves to rest in peace. So while the upstairs lounge no longer is in operation since the fire, the Gemani Bar located downstairs, who actually owned the property above as well, that is still in operation. During the time of the fire, it was owned by Jimmy Masachi, and it's now owned by his son, Jimmy Masachi Jr. I'm not going to speak for anyone's character, I just thought it was an interesting choice of words, but the current owner of the Jamani Bar, Jimmy Masachi Jr., said that his father had put up a reward for the capture of the arsonist, and that it was really bold of him because no one else had done so. And he claimed that his father was tolerant of the queer community, which... That was the word he used specifically was tolerant, which I find is a really bad word choice. Just because you tolerate something doesn't mean that you agree with it or support those people. And in saying that, He offered a reward for the capture of the arsonist. While that could, in a way, seem altruistic at first, I can't help but think he wanted this man apprehended so that he could sue him for the property damage. But that's just me reading into things. And I don't know, just with how the response was with the community, maybe that's just me being pessimistic. But regardless, the family still owns the building and. Obviously, there is a lot of negative energy imprinted there, like, that has to leave some kind of psychic imprint, some kind of energy imprint, and it's no surprise that people report ghostly sightings. Now, there is one other story that may lead to the property at 141 Charter Street being haunted. Way prior to the upstairs lounge massacre, there was an interesting thing that had happened. So in 1849, Dr. Thomas Hunt, the brother of a U.S. congressman named Theodore G. Hunt, purchased the property. Now, now Dr. Hunt was a very well-known doctor in the area, and he helped found the Medical College of Louisiana, which later became Tulane University. But in 1851, he got himself in some hot water and made headlines for murder. So while at a Whig Party meeting, the editor of the New Orleans Crescent, John W. Frost, gave a speech where he may have been bad-mouthing Theodore G. Hunt, who was Dr. Hunt's brother. So Theodore did not like that at all. So Theodore challenged John Frost to a duel, as was the way back then. However, there was a problem with him challenging Frost to a duel. Not only was dueling illegal, but in 1845, Louisiana drafted a new state constitution, which prevented anyone who had taken part in a duel or who would want to take part in a duel from holding public office. So, Theodore, though he was mad that Frost was crap-talking him, he couldn't duel Frost himself. So, he had his brother... Dr. Thomas Hunt Duel Frost. So Dr. Hunt challenged Frost to a duel, Frost accepted, and the men held their duel at a distance of 40 paces as is customary, and well, wouldn't you know, Dr. Hunt uh, won the duel and Frost was dead. Serves him right for talking crap. However, the state did end up bringing a case against Dr. Hunt and others that were involved in this duel and the felony and killing of John Frost. Grand jury met and found a Hunt responsible, but nobody was ever arrested, and Dr. Hunt simply ran away. And when it came time for a trial in March of 1852, the judge that was presiding over the case excused himself from the trial and just chose not to even listen to it. The second judge that was to take his place just chose not to show up for his (laughs) time on the panel. And the third judge, judge number three, third time's the charm, quote, didn't have time to hear the case. So the DA felt like, wow, I tried this with three different judges. No one wants to take this case. No one's listening. So charges were just dropped. And since charges were dropped and people pretty much were like, well, John Frost did agree to this duel because that's a dumb thing to do, they kind of just didn't care. Dr. Hunt came back and served as the dean of the University of Louisiana Medical Department before he died in 1867. Strange. So perhaps Frost haunts the bar as well, but I find that doubtful. So many paranormal investigators, as is usual, have come to the Jamani Bar to look for evidence of ghosts and the supernatural. Many have taken EVP recordings, even the Ghost Hunters television show visited in 2012. They got some EVPs but couldn't really make contact with any of the ghosts. The most often reported paranormal experience is hearing people screaming for help, loud sounds coming from the upstairs lounge even though the space is unoccupied, smelling burning hair and burning flesh, and other people have even seen glowing orbs floating around the property. One of the ghosts that is said to haunt the upstairs lounge and the Jamani bar is the spirit of the pianist George Budmachi, who died trying to save victims of the fire. Now, there are not very many first-hand encounters of paranormal spirits directly in the lounge as that area is still closed off to the public and isn't really in a state that is safe to inhabit. So that is the story of the upstairs lounge fire and its ghosts. Before we officially close out, I do want to take the time to read the names of the 32 victims of this horrific attack. They are as follows. Joseph Henry Adams, Reginald Adams, Jr., Guy D. Anderson, Joe William Bailey, Luther Boggs, Louis Horace Broussard, Herbert Dean Cooley, Donald Walter Dunbar, Adam Roland Fontenot, David Stuart Gary, Horace Skip Getchell, John Thomas Golding Sr., Gerald Hoyt Gordon, Glenn Dick Green, James Walls Hambrick, Kenneth Paul Harrington, Reverend William R. Larson, Ferris LeBlanc, Robert or Bob Lumpkin, Leon Richard Maples, George Stephen Machie, Clarence Joseph McCloskey Jr., Dwayne George Mitch or Mitchell, Larry Stratton, Mrs. Willie Inez Warren, Eddie Hosiah Warren, James Curtis Warren, Dr. Perry Lane Waters Jr., and Douglas Maxwell Williams along with the three unknown and unidentified white males buried in New Orleans' potter's field. So thank you so much for joining me this week, closing out Pride Week with a story that hit me very hard. I don't want to say that I hope it hit you hard, but I hope it did hit you somewhere and ignited something within you, even if it's just a further sense of pride for how far we have truly come in this nation. We have a lot of work to do, not only in our own country, but in many countries throughout the world where being gay is still not only illegal, but is essentially a death threat. Thank you so much for joining me this week. There's not going to be a witty outro. I, I just don't have it in me. I think all the joy was sucked out of my heart. But as always, um, yeah, just stay spooky, stay prideful, and stay safe. Until next time. Bye.